Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Rayleigh Alou on the socials. Dr Gideon Bletcher is a urologist and andrologist. As a surgeon who looks after male reproductive and sexual health issues, he has completed several years of overseas fellowship subspecialty training in both andrology and robotic oncology. He specialises in a variety of areas, including erectile dysfunction, penile prosthetic surgery, genital reconstruction, male infertility, male incontinence, sexual dysfunction and general urology. Thank you for joining us today, Gideon. It's wonderful to be here. Gideon and I go back quite a way. We went to uni together back when at Monash and um, we took very divergent career pathways. Gideon, do you want to tell us a bit about your training and career and what you've done over the last few years to get to be a subspecialist in urology and in men's infertility? Sure. Look, um, after the uh, six years of med school that we shared together, I um, spent several years working in a variety of hospitals, uh, undertaking the usual surgical training, which involves hopping across to a variety of different surgical groups and getting involved in the different surgeries, I guess. And then after that, once I got onto the urology training program, uh, that was uh, about another six years of Australian training. I really, uh, I felt that there was a bit of a lack of uh, training in men's health areas, uh, penile genital issues uh, and fertility issues. We really didn't cover it at, at all. And uh, so it really drove me to try and want to find out more about this and see if this was an area which was actually a specialty in of itself. So that's what took me overseas. So I spent three years in London and uh, I was at some pretty amazing hospitals there and, and got amazing exposure and education in uh, what's termed andrology, which is essentially men's health, but it's the surgery of men's related problems. And that's what I uh, focus predominantly on nowadays. And do you think there are barriers for men in terms of investigating infertility? And can you talk a little bit about that? Look, I think there's probably two main barriers when it comes to men and fertility. Number one is Australian men are, in my opinion, pretty um, reluctant to necessarily go and talk about these issues in the first place, let alone seeing a medical practitioner. Uh, that's certainly different to my experience whilst being overseas. I think European men and even men in the UK are somewhat more in tune and comfortable with being able to explore their own health uh, issues. So I think that's the first area, and that's a major challenge I don't have an exact answer to how to fix it other than bringing in these concepts to the Australian community and trying to work with various groups in getting guys more comfortable with the whole concept of looking after themselves. But the second issue probably relates to more of a concept of fertility in general and, well, whose fault is infertility? And 
most people, uh, myself included, when I was younger, if, if the first question is, well, if a couple can't get pregnant, is it going to be a male or a female's fault? We would all, 98% of the time, say, well, of course it's going to be the female partner. And uh, that's a big area because it's completely misconstrued. Uh, you, you'd probably know we're talking 25% of the time it's probably a male-only factor, which is a yeah, huge... Yeah, absolutely. Huge... We actually talk about that quite a lot. Rania has said that the first thing she starts with is when seen in an infertile couple is the male's fertility because it's non-invasive compared to what the women have to undergo. So maybe in your practice you'd probably do some work on male infertility. What are the kind of things you'll start with when you see a couple about that? Oh, look, the first thing is you've got to get a feel for the couple. Where have they been and, and what are they aiming for? And, and so in, in relation to that, it's well, how long have they been trying to get pregnant for? Have they ever managed to conceive before, either individually with previous partners or together? Is there something that's genetically sort of holding them back or has there been some change along the years, whether that be an infection or surgery? Uh, obviously, a vasectomy would be a pretty important uh, reason in Australia for a man's inability to have uh, semen in the ejaculate. But there's a range of things that I would then need to explore just by having that conversation uh, with the patient and the couple uh, and then there's a small minutiae of patients who may have physical changes, whether that be because of hormones or development or genetics, which, you know, part of my job is to really pick up. Uh, so that's probably that area, I guess. I guess also a lot of couples struggle just to have sex and it's not something that we talk about a lot and sometimes not something they're comfortable to talk about. Can you tell us a little bit about the proportion of guys who have either sexual dysfunction or ejaculatory problems and what you can do to help? I just want to interrupt. Our most listened to episode is the one where we described correctly having sex. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's actually not something that's as basic as we might think. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's hard to quantify the frequency of sexual dysfunction in the community because it's a hidden issue. I mean, look, I, I see it. I have a lot of discussions with patients and we talk about it, but I'm probably seeing a really skewed proportion of people who, A, have the problem, B, want to try and get help for it. So it's very hard to, for me to quantify, well, how, how problematic is it really in our community? I think Rayleigh would certainly ask a lot of her patients, if not all of them, well, how, how frequently are you having intercourse and, um, you know, are you having any gaps and timing and all that sort of thing? And the answer is to a lot of those questions, we probably don't know what the right frequency is necessarily. Uh, so there's a lot of general measures which we'll try and uh, describe to patients, including lifestyle measures, but that's another conundrum, I guess, when to do it, how to do it, uh, although it does sound pretty simple. Sometimes we may not even have all the answers, but certainly there are general grading principles that we can apply. In the process of identifying male infertility, are there any common tests you do? Yeah, look, after looking at a patient physically and, and taking that history, it's uh, the semen analysis really is pretty important. Uh, in fact, it's vital to the point where you'd, you'd always do it twice and that's set by international guidelines. There are other tests that you would consider doing, which commonly I do, including hormonal profiling, and then it really depends on the semen analysis and your clinical findings. So what, what I mean by that is if, if you think there's a genetic reason for it and that may come across, say, for example... A gentleman doesn't have, you know, vas deferens. You know, if you're having a vasectomy, you cut those two tubes, the vasa. Uh, so those are the tubes that go from the testicle uh, here on in uh, to supply uh, the ejaculate with the sperm. If those are just not there, well, then something's amiss. 
and that will cue me in to start looking into some genetic reasons why that may be. You've mentioned the vasectomy a few times. It's a fairly common procedure in Australia. Do you maybe want to talk us through what happens and if it can be reversed? So what happens with a vasectomy? Yeah, so if a man wants a vasectomy for the opposite of fertility, they want to stop being fertile, what happens and then what do we do to reverse it if it can be reversed? Sure. Look, uh, the first step would that a gentleman would perhaps go and see their GP. Many GPs uh, would perform that procedure as well as urologists. And it's actually a fairly simple procedure, but I take a lot of time discussing this because the implications are quite significant. Uh, whenever uh, anyone gets operations on their genitals, I, I, I need to spend a lot of time explaining what could potentially go wrong because although it's, it's a pretty simple concept, uh, it's a two snips, uh, there are other subtleties which need to be explained. So essentially what happens is a man, this can be done either under a general anaesthetic uh, or with local anaesthetic, so pretty simple in the rooms, a little cut on each side. Uh, you can do that in a variety of ways. Sometimes people put little sharp uh, spreading tools in and we call this a no-cut technique. Your, 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 your face is <laughs> telling me. I'm not medical. <laughs> it doesn't sound comfortable. <laughs> but the, the essence of the procedure is that you just deliver these little tubes, the vasa, which are about three to four millimetres in thickness, like a, like a big you know, thick piece of spaghetti. You identify that, you, you, you divide that, you separate the two ends, and there's a variety of things you could do. You could either just gently burn the ends, you could tie them off, uh, and then we separate them into different sort of compartments so that one end is in one section and one, sec- one piece is in the other so that the risk of any reconnection is, is pretty low, although there is, there is a rate, albeit pretty low, of 1 in 2,000 failure rates. So that would be one important thing that I'd mention to patients. Other aspects of, of that, well, we can go into that shortly, but I think your question was about can it be reversed, and that's a really important concept because for most guys they think, well, Sure, I've heard it can be reversed, so let's just do it. Why not? Simple, yeah. safe, don't have to worry about other forms of contraception. Well, well, it's certainly simpler than for the alternative for the women. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's way on the outside. So, yes, and it can be performed, you know, 15 minutes really, even sooner for some surgeons. So it's a pretty straightforward procedure. But reversal is uh, successful, but not all of the time. And that's the thing that we need to bear in mind because if a man has often has a vasectomy, well... I need to counsel that man that, well, maybe right at this very moment you're not necessarily keen on having kids, but we all know life changes, circumstances change. So often, uh, whether it be the decision from the couple or a new partner's involved, uh, there'll be a decision that we want to go and reverse, and that can work, and it probably varies between maybe 30 and 80% success rates, but it depends what you look at in terms of the success rates. But it can be done. We do do it. It's, It's available. Um, but uh, part of the important counselling of whether or not you want to go down that route in the first place is I think you should essentially consider it non-reversible before you head yeah. down that route. And I guess we've got to clarify what we mean by success rates because um, some people would define success as return to sperm to the ejaculate, uh, but the longer it's been since you've had the vasectomy, the more likely a man is to develop antibodies against his sperm, which can make, render them less kind of, I guess, good swimmers. And often we do see some men who've post-vasectomy reversals still require assisted reproductive treatment because of antibody formation. Yeah, look, I think that's, 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 that's important to consider the duration. You're entirely right. If, if a man has decided to reverse a vasectomy a year later, their outcome in terms of having sperm in their ejaculate and their ability to become pregnant, and that brings you to your point of, well, what's, what is success? Uh, is different to the man who's maybe waited 22 years before then wanting to have a vast reversal. 
so that that will determine the success. There's probably other features, you know, such as well, how frequently does that surgeon perform that operation, etc. Anti-sperm antibodies is a, is an interesting one. They definitely exist. I'm not convinced of their overall role in it. I don't think we truly really understand exactly what their uh, role is in the whole game of things, but they do exist and. Uh, it's it's just amazing the amount that we possibly don't know in the whole field of male infertility, but it's part of the art of having these discussions with patients that we know some stuff and we can give you guidance. Uh, we can't always be absolute, but in the area of vas reversal, you're entirely right. And in fact, the, that that's not just for the ability to have a, a baby naturally. You know, the longer that a, a couple will wait to have a vas reversal, that also affects their artificial reproductive chances too. So that brings you to your point of, well, is it is it the anti-sperm antibodies that are playing a role? I, I'm not sure of the answer to Maybe that. Maybe also couples' age, because we know that fertility declines both in men and women with age, with women more absolutely, but with men also. Mm, mm, indeed. If a man wants to have a child after vasectomy, there are two main ways to retrieve sperm, either through a vasectomy reversal or to take sperm from the testis one way or another, be that for a fine needle biopsy, a PESA, which is P-E-S-A, or per epididymal sperm retrieval, or a microtesi procedure, uh, which is an open testicular biopsy. We've touched on these topics, but I think it would be good to compare them in more detail now so listeners understand them a bit better. So why why IVF? Why wouldn't you have a vasectomy reversal? Um, I, I, well, if I was a couple, and why would I choose to go uh, with artificial reproduction? Well, first of all, if you actually look at the data, it's probably more reliable to go for artificial reproduction first. More reliably, it's actually if you have surgery and then have IVF or ICSI. But that involves two separate procedures, so it's sort of you don't really want to be trying to guide patients to doing two things. But that group, out of all the groups, so if you divide the group of um, if you just have a vas reversal, if you just have you know artificial reproduction, or if you have a vas reversal and then reproduction, it's the group have the combination over the high success rates. So, uh, but in terms of the difference, the difference is probably fairly small. We're probably talking ten to fifteen percent sort of difference in overall success outcomes between. Uh, just going for a vas reversal versus artificial reproduction. So if a patient was perhaps uh, older, uh, female age we're talking, uh, or if they wanted to, say, have fewer children, if they wanted really one child, maybe two, they may, that may be arguments for heading towards artificial reproduction. Uh, if you look at cost analysis, well, that's going to be the argument the other way slightly, we think. Um, there's been studies that have been shown mainly from America about, well, what's, what's cheaper on the whole? Um, and those studies from the mid-90s show that it was, it was significantly cheaper to have surgery and, and it probably still does play in today. It's interesting because the cost of IVF in the USA, having said that, is way higher than what it is here in Australia and there's no government subsidy in the USA whereas there is here. So I'm not sure that, that those studies are relevant in the Australian environment. Yeah, we don't know and that's, it's a really important thing that we probably should be looking into as well. Um, so normally when I talk about this, I'm, I mean, I'm trying to sort of figure Do out the other side. Hey? Yeah, the other side. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Well, I can tell you from my experience. Okay, I'll, I'll. Why don't I play the debate? Why have a vasectomy reversal, and then we can swap sides and sure. we can, we can do it the other way. So I would say, why have a vasectomy reversal? Well, the woman doesn't want to have IVF. Surely that counts for something. Well, it's a lot to go through. So a perfectly fertile woman who hasn't struggled with infertility, there's an obvious reason that they're not getting pregnant, he's had a vasectomy. Often he's had children before, 
which is common after having had a vasectomy, after completing another family or, or a change of heart within the same relationship. So there's some kind of knowledge that he was at one point very fertile. And potentially they might have a religious belief that might influence whether they want to have IVF. Some things like you know, Catholic couples don't, uh, if they're practising, um, don't support IVF. Um, it could be that uh, they want to have multiple children over time and there's no rush in terms of female age and they want to have children the good old-fashioned way, which we all do. Um, nobody ideally, you know, kind of in their first plan A wants to have IVF. So that would be, for, to my mind, the argument to try a vasectomy reversal. Yeah, I think that's it's it's really about tailoring it to the couple, isn't it? And there are various aspects which are going to help you guide those patients. We can never be absolute about well, this is what you have to do. It usually comes from the patient, to be honest. I mean, I don't get the patients usually asking me which way I should go because by the time they come to me, they've made up their decision as to they want to undergo reversal type surgery. But the you know, key components, I would probably say overall, are you know that, that the female age is really pretty vital. The number of kids, uh, costs involved, perhaps. Uh, that'd probably be the main factors, but there's a lot of things that we have to take into consideration, I guess. Yeah. So I guess the flip side of the argument, well, why would you do IVF rather than um, have a vasectomy reversal? Well, same. If a guy doesn't want a vasectomy reversal, just wants to have one child and doesn't want his vasectomy reversed. Um, if the woman is of advanced age, as we mentioned, and it's very advantageous, especially if more than one child is wanted over time to have embryos in the freezer. So there's another indication for IVF. Wouldn't it be faster? Well, also if there's another female indication for IVF. So then we talked about a lot of couples having complex compound reasons for infertility. So let's just say she's got bad endometriosis and she's got blocked tubes. Or if we're doing genetic testing of embryos for a reason of preventing a genetic disease that the couple are a carrier, both carriers of, or if we want to do aneuploidy screening of embryos uh, so that we know that the embryos we're putting in the freezer for embryo banking have a good chance of future pregnancy potential if we're thinking about having more than one baby. Uh, so really I think those are pretty strong arguments for IVF. So it really depends on, um, on the couple and, and their individual assessment, which I think we'll will agree on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Look, I think we're on the same team here. Um, I guess when you're talking about faster, what's faster? Well, we might, well in, if the male has to have a surgery, recover from it, check everything's okay, you've got a woman of advanced age, isn't it just faster to get the sperm and do IVF? Well, on the, on the whole, it actually is. And mm -hmm. we're not, not talking by a lot, but we're talking a matter of months, four to six yeah, months. Yeah, but it could be if you're 38. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But in, in time, you know, if you if you have a race between two couples who are going in, the, in, in this race, you know, uh, surgery to, to reverse the vasectomy or uh, artificial reproduction, Re artificial reproduction will, will in that race by a few months on the whole on average. Yeah, because you're also assuming that as soon as everything's fine with the male, she'll get pregnant straight away. Well, that's right, that's right. And that's also assuming that the patency of your reconstruction, so whether or not those tubes are still opening, uh, interestingly, it doesn't necessarily happen immediately. Mm. So although you do your surgery, that can take three, six, nine months for sperm to start to be seen in the ejaculate. Meanwhile, Raylia could have worked her magic and you'd be six months pregnant. You mentioned about 25% of the infertility is lies with the man. What are some of the problems that there might well, be? 25 lies only with the man because really actually up to 50% of couples who seek 
help to get pregnant, there's a kind of combination of factors. So I would say that, you know, roughly breaking it into, you know, kind of thirds, a third would be um, 25 to 30% would be male only. So there's a serious male factor and that is the reason. And that includes um, things like chromosome translocations and things like that from the male as well as sperm problems. And then a third would roughly be uh, female only, so things like endometriosis, blocked tubes, advanced maternal age, egg quality, things like that. And then for the rest of couples that struggle, um, there'll be a proportion that's unexplained and there'll be a proportion where there are multifactorial issues, where there's something wrong with the sperm, something not quite right with the anatomy, special combination of effects. And sometimes that's persistent in a couple but it might not be that those two individuals were still infertile in another relationship. So it becomes more and more complicated. So if the infertility lies with a man, what are some of the issues? Apart from vasectomy. Yeah. You mean there's other reasons why a man could be infertile? Yes, I do. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, well, hence why so we're here. So you've done your sperm test. Yeah, what so are you finding? Well, look, it could, it could be the fact that Number one, there's, we've talked a little bit about sex and ejaculate, so maybe there's a functional ejaculation issue. Now, these tend to be more common in men who may have neurological disorders or whether they've had surgery to the prostate or they're on certain medications for, for sort of urinary symptoms. They're probably the more common reasons. You can get other reasons perhaps, like maybe, maybe the tubes are blocked, not at the vas level, but maybe around the prostate levels. That's an uncommon cause. So what does this mean? The ejaculate goes back? Well, it could go back. It could go backwards into the bladder. Right. So we call that retrograde ejaculation. Okay. And although there might be some treatments for that, it's pretty difficult to absolutely fix. There are some things that we can try, but often in those sorts of men, we can actually get sperm from them by getting a, a, a urine sample. So we get, the, we get them to, to basically masturbate or ejaculate orgasm. They don't ejaculate externally, but all that ejaculate goes backwards into their bladder and then they can pee it out afterwards. Amazing. We and can then, harvest that, yeah. And then you engage Raylia. Yeah, we, we use it for IVF. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So not, not necessarily a, the, the most the routine, traditional method. the traditional method, a different <laughs> way, different strokes for different folks. So they might be obstructed or there might be an issue to do, to do with the actual ejaculatory process. Spinal cord patients, for example, they may not be able to ejaculate normally. Uh, so in those patients, we might be able to get an ejaculate by stimulating them externally. So there's penile vibrators or there's little probes that you can put into the rectum, which um, using a small amount of electricity, it's just tiny, you're screaming your face, squeamish, squeamishly crunching your again, eyes again. Not medical. <laughs> <laughs> but these are just various ways that we can try and get an ejaculate uh, from a gentleman. Um, what are the other problems? Well, look, there could be... Uh, problems that have uh, occurred in childhood. Mumps, for example. Mumps or chitis, yes, it can affect these glands up in your, in your cheeks, but it can also give you a pretty nasty infection of the testicles and render someone with poor ability to, to, to produce sperm. Uh, so that would be one example. Varicoceles are kind of this uh, uh, little uh, closet uh, uh, problem where uh, essentially what it is, it's, it's dilated veins in the scrotum. And there's a variety of reasons why we think they may occur. But if you ask anyone in fertility, it's this area which is definitely associated with male infertility. Whether or not it absolutely causes infertility, we probably can't give you 100% answers. But can we treat a varicocele and can we maybe improve some aspects of fertility? Yes. But can it definitely increase your ability to have a baby? 
at this stage, I'd probably be hard pressed to say definitely yes, but it's difficult to know when we look at the data from previous years, what that means in terms of how we now understand things and going forwards. I think what I'm trying to say by that is varicoceles are, are noted to be in, you know, 25, even higher percentage of infertile couple populations and much less so about 15% of general population. So it's more common in the infertile man. Okay. But yeah. that doesn't necessarily be my inference that causes fertility. Mm. Well, we know that the testis likes to be a few degrees cooler than the body and there's no doubt that varicoceles impair the cooling mechanisms of the testis. So um, certainly my view uh, has been that if it's clinical, if it's a clinical varicocele, meaning you can see it, I generally refer a patient to a urologist such as yourself to have a chat to the gentleman about whether or not he wants to undertake a surgical pathway because many people feel that they want to do what they can to get pregnant naturally if possible. Obviously, you've got to view holistically a couple. It might be something that... You might not have a lot of time. The woman might be a little bit older. They might want to have more than one baby. And so there are other advantages of more of an assisted reproductive treatment pathway. But if a couple's young and they've got time, it might be something they want to try. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the treatment of a varicocele can be pretty simple, ranging to a little bit more uh, complicated. But there are definitely things we can do. But I guess that would be a very common thing that um, people dealing with male-related infertility would be on the lookout for. Um, obviously, if patients have had surgeries such as an orchidectomy or treatment for cancers, chemotherapy, that's going to obviously affect things. Genetically, uh, it's important that we uh, make that assessment, and it's usually going to be from the chromosomal, sorry, the chromosomal analysis, uh, as well as other genetic tests. Um, so they're probably more common, but a large proportion are idiopathic, meaning we don't really know. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of the time, patients, even who have normal semen analyses, are going to have fertility issues and we don't really know exactly why and that brings us back down to you know what Rayleigh was mentioning before that you know half of the patients that come and see us will be a male and female related issue and we can't necessarily pinpoint exactly what the issue is at this point maybe later we'll be smarter and with further research we'll be able to say no 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 it's not that we don't know at all now we know but we, at the moment we just don't have the uh, the tools to be able to put the finger on exactly what the issue is yeah, I think we've described in a previous episode about what the parameters of a semen analysis are. And we know that, you know, the World Health Organization, the most recent updated one is 2010 version, but they took fertile men from different continents, thousands of men. And we defined a fertile man as someone who had a natural pregnancy with their partner in less than a year. And they graphed the sperm and drew a line at the fifth centile for that normal population. And that's what we call the lower limit of normal. So it's not actually a functional test of how sperm and egg get together. And from my experience, we learn a lot in a first IVF cycle for a couple with unexplained infertility because we have the privilege of seeing what their eggs and sperm do together in the lab. And it's very diagnostic. We learn a lot. So that even if they don't get pregnant in their first go, we really get a lot of information that we can take away and nuance treatment to improve their outcomes, which is really great. You mentioned lifestyle. We've talked a lot about lifestyle for women, mostly, and how that impacts fertility. What can men be doing? All the things that doctors will normally tell you. Lose weight? Yeah, so avoid <laughs> eat obesity, eat healthy, balanced lifestyle, don't smoke, uh, nothing in excess really. Um, they're probably the, the main features which have been shown to improve sperm health, yeah. Gideon, can you tell us a little bit about 
uh, how you tackle a gentleman who comes to see you when he has azoospermia, so no sperm. He's had the shock of his life. His doctors told him there's no sperm in the ejaculate. What do you do when it comes to your rooms? Yeah, that's um, it's a pretty confronting uh, moment for a, a man and as a couple when all of a sudden they've realised there's no sperm. I guess the important thing to realise is, is that, in fact, in about 40% of these couples, there actually is some sperm in that man. And it's my job to try and help find it. So I, I love to give people a little bit of hope, realistically, obviously, of course, but I love to give them the hope that there, there might be something that we can do. So if there's no sperm at all, I mean, we spoke, I think, briefly, and then we diverged slightly. We're talking about well, what could be the problems, and we said, well, maybe there's just poor sperm quality, but maybe if there's no sperm, uh, is it because of obstruction, so there's blockage of tubes, or is it non-obstructive? So your question is about non-obstructive azoospermia. So in the man who's actually just not making sperm in his testicles, we can, apart from doing, you know, the genetic tests and making sure all of that's okay, we can then try and retrieve sperm directly from the testicles or from the epididymia. The epididymia are the little structures that sit around the testicle and their role is to basically suck out the sperm and there's a the degree of maturation that occurs uh, at that point and then those uh, sperm get sent on yonder uh, into the vas. So we can retrieve sperm from either of those locations. Uh, in non-obstructive azoospermia, you really need to be finding it in the testicle if it's going to be there. In the old days, sort of, you know, we're talking the beginning of the 20th century, a needle was simply placed into the testicle and, and aspirated, so sucked out. And interestingly, there was occasionally a little sperm that was found. Things have then obviously progressed since then. So you, there's a variety of ways you could just uh, maybe make a little few incisions in the testicle and chop some of that, that tissue out. And that relies on the principle that even though in these men who have no sperm in their ejaculate, there are little pockets within the testis that are still making sperm. Now, why that is, we don't truly understand, but there's different patterns of what's going on within a testicle. If you look under the microscope, some areas will just have no cells at all that are making these sperm. Whereas in other people, it might just be that they are making sperm, but they're just not maturing normally. So we call that maturation arrest. So with different patterns of what's going on in the testicle, there might be little pockets of sperm that are being produced. So more recently, in the 80s, uh, techniques were developed such that what we do now and what I offer certain men is that it's a slightly more invasive procedure, but you basically uh, open up the testicle and we bring in a surgical microscope and we're zooming really close in to look at the tubules. Now, the testicle's made up of these little worm-like tubules, but they're hollow. So on the inside of these tubes is where the cells that produce the sperm in the first place are. Now, if those cells are not producing any sperm at all, then those tubes are going to be small, collapsed, and possibly slightly see-through. Whereas, what I'm actually looking for when I do this procedure, it's called a microtesticular sperm extraction, it's a long word, MTZ, <laughs> microtesy, various ways oh, of saying it. Oh, we've talked about them before. Yeah, so what, what I'm hoping to find is a little area where those tubules, instead of being small and, and translucent, are actually slightly fatter and a little bit opaque, so I can't see through it. In other words, there's something being produced on the inside of that. Now, together with an embryologist, which is uh, a scientist who will uh, spend their days looking at sperm, I will pick out those little areas, send them over to the embryologist, and whilst in theatre together, we'll work as a team to try and identify those areas of the testicle which are producing sperm. And then as soon as we find an area, then I'll hunt down on that and, and spend more time trying to tease out these little bits uh, of sperm-producing tubules. Once that's done, those sperm can either be used either fresh or we can freeze them for, for use later with something like IVF or an ICSI-type procedure. 
So that's uh, probably the more common procedure that I can utilise for men who've got non-obstructive azoospermia. And that's really been shown to produce the highest rates of successful sperm retrieval. That's really exciting. And there's a proportion of men that won't go on to find sperm despite this procedure, but I think they have closure, that they've tried everything that they can do to have a baby with their own sperm and then can move on to uh, potentially having a baby with donor sperm if needed. Look, I think that's I think that's really important because there's so much pressure on 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 females in our community to you know you if you want to have a baby you, you must go all this way and do all of this sort of stuff and men often feel slightly helpless like well I'm just kind of straggling along and supporting but in this situation the the tables the, t- the tables have t- have turned. Yes and-, and no. I mean I would still say that when you do a microtesi the often perfectly fertile female has to go through an IVF process. Yes, so, yes, indeed. Unfortunately, there's no way of getting around that the woman has to carry the baby. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. We talk a lot on our podcast about fertility, obviously, freezing eggs, what women can do to prepare themselves, that we all fall off a cliff at 35. What about men? Like, should, should 39-year-old men be thinking about freezing their sperm? It's not the same level of deterioration with sperm in relation to eggs. There is certainly a decline in terms of the production and the quality of sperm as men age. That's definitely been shown. So you can't say that men don't have a clock, but I don't think that clock is as influential as a female clock. Because when, when females are born, correct me if I'm wrong here, Rayleigh, I mean, you'd know better than me, but, uh, you know, there, there's, there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of, of, of eggs, but then they deteriorate quite significantly over time to, you know, the, that late 30, early 40 period where they're really, you know, significantly lower, impairing the ability of natural conception. Whereas for men, there are hundreds of thousands and millions of sperm being produced. I mean, if you're talking about the, you know, those numbers in what's a normal semen analysis... Two mils is an average or the lowest end, I should say, of normal volume of an ejaculate. And then 15 million sperm per mil is the lowest end of normal. So we're talking 30 million sperm in an average ejaculate, and that's the, that's the lower end. So there's a lot more sperm around uh, rather than the number of eggs that we have to our avail. Yeah, it's true. And to take that to the one egg that a woman makes every month to try and get pregnant. I thought we made more than one. No, it will. No, we don't. So the average woman will release one egg per month, well, mature one egg per month. And what we do in IVF or in egg freezing is out of the group of eggs that put their hand up to be that dominant egg that month, who are on a one-way ticket, they can't go back to the resting pool. They've thrown their hat into the ring. They're either going to be dominant or they're going to die. We rescue that cohort. So we change up the hormonal environment to artificially promote the development of more than one egg. But it's only in that context that more than one egg comes along. Occasionally, and more commonly in women over 40, you'll have a double ovulation. That's why twins are more common in older women. That's because of the way our hormones change with age. Uh, And that can happen at any age. And actually, just diverging completely off topic, there are some places in the world where genetically women are more likely to release two eggs and have twins. And that's the way that twins can run in families. But um, most of the time it's one egg for us. All our eggs in one basket, so to speak. And all our million men in one basket on our side. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, and sperm is always our way. You know, when you look at a normal semen analysis, we say that we like 4% of the sperm to look normal. 
So sperm has always been a quantity over quality equation, but men make sperm every day of their life until they die. So it's just a very different biological strategy to women. Some men do have trouble getting uh, an erection and being able to have intercourse, and um, that can be very distressing. Can you tell us a little bit about how you would treat a man with erectile dysfunction? It really depends on what the cause of the erectile dysfunction is. Now, in younger populations of men, it's usually going to be some sort of a psychological component to it, whether that be a new partner, never had sex before, trying to now have a, a natural conception, uh, a particular traumatic event that's occurred. So my job is basically to support that man and, and help him realise that essentially from an anatomical perspective, I think he's okay but we need to work on, well, what's causing this hindrance psychologically. So often we'll involve the help of a sexologist, essentially a psychologist who deals with sex issues and relationship issues. I'll support that man in, in terms of helping him medically, so often using medications to try and help prop him up as well. Uh, excuse the pun there, but we'll have to use that one maybe in, in a few more to come. <laughs> There's a few bad puns around. We at Melbourne IVF had a campaign to um, engage sperm donors to get them interested in altruistic sperm donation. It was called Get a Grip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We love a exactly. pun. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the other causes, you know, maybe there's poor blood supply or maybe there's a, a, a hormonal issue, so low testosterone or, or maybe there's surgery, something like that. So these are the various reasons perhaps why someone may have encountered erectile dysfunction issues. And predominantly there's, there's a variety of things that we can do. Now, if someone's got poor testosterone, obviously we can look at that and try and address that. But in the other forms, uh, it's really about managing their risk factors. So, for example, um, the the causes of heart disease, smoking, high blood pressure, cholesterol, obesity, uh, we, we can't really change the family history, but those ones we can try and help uh, alter. And what's that got to do with anything to do with the erections? Well, the blood supply to the penis is really important. And if you've got those risk factors, you're going to get narrowing of the blood vessels to the penis. And you're going to get narrowing of the blood vessels to the penis a lot earlier than you would to, to say, the, the blood vessels of the brain or the heart. So, in fact, erectile dysfunction is a really important heralding potential issue. And I need to be able to pick up on that and go, hang on a second, I think we need to get you seen by a cardiologist. There might be something a lot more significant going on here. So management of, of that aspect is also pretty important. Uh, medications or variety of treatments like you know, vacuum pumps or even... Uh, you ready for your, your scrunching of your <laughs> eyes? Okay. Uh, injections into the penis, which are a really effective form of treatment. And then obviously at the end of all those, if those things aren't working, then, then surgery. We've got a lot of penile implants that we can use nowadays uh, to help get by on the problem of the erections. And can the penile implants be uh, something that's compatible with fertility? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Interestingly, there's not, there's not many uh, studies, in fact, there are no studies about ejaculatory function and these penile implants, but definitely you can still orgasm, you can ejaculate. So what the penile implant provides is the rigidity for penetration that you need. And so then, yeah, absolutely, that can be used for natural conception. Gideon, do you ever have referrals of men who've had a cancer diagnosis for fertility preservation? And um, can you tell us a little bit about what you do for those men? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, this is becoming more and more of uh, an awareness issue, survivorship, particularly in younger men. And the reason why I say younger men is in relation to testicular cancer. Obviously, there's a lot of other men who will get a variety of different cancers and they may need to undergo treatments, radiation or chemotherapy, which are going to impair their uh, sperm. Uh, and for, for those men, they'll need to basically perform an ejaculate 
and have that frozen, i.e. cryopreservation. Now, I don't normally necessarily come across the, that cohort of patients because they've got normal ejaculate. I am more uh, and more nowadays getting referrals for men who have a diagnosis of testicular cancer. Now, why is this group different? Men who have testicular cancer are more at risk of male infertility problems. So that's definitely the case. And in fact, how much of the case is it? Well, 10% of men who have a diagnosis of testicular cancer, which is the most common cancer in young men, solid organ cancer, 10% of those men will be azospermic. So 10% will have no sperm, which is much higher than the rate of azospermia in the general community. So all of a sudden, I've got this group of patients who have got a testicle cancer problem, but 10% of all of those men will have a significant fertility issue before they've even started their treatment for testicular cancer. So what can we do for those men? Well, yeah, what will happen is they'll normally get an ejaculate sample. Ideally, we try and do this before they've headed down to their uh, treatment for testicular cancer, but it's probably more common in Australia at the moment that men will get an orchidectomy, which is removal of the testicle with the cancer in it, then prior to starting any further treatment if required, such as chemotherapy, they'll have a semen test. All of a sudden there'll be this, oh, there's no sperm. And I'll then ha have a discussion with those men. Now in, in those men, the decision is whether or not we want to do one of these procedures, like a microtessie, before starting any treatment, or whether we do the treatment and then try and get some sperm later at a later date. Ideally, I would love to see those men before they even have their orchidectomy. And the reason why that is is because... When we're doing the orchidectomy and removing the cancer, we can actually see if there's any normal seminiferous tubules around the cancer in that testicle and get some sperm that way. That way we don't even need to touch the other unaffected testicle. So, you know, really that's, that's um, an issue which will probably change over the next 10 years, I imagine, that we'll try and focus more on fertility in these uh, testicular cancer patients. Um, but that's essentially the main role that where I come in, either before or at a later date. Uh, so hopefully we can preserve sperm for uh, you know at least 40-50% of these men. Obviously it's not going to be the case for every man, but um, my job is to do my best job. Kitty, if people want to find you, how do they do that? Uh, so I work in a variety of uh, locations. Uh, I'm on the web, so it's uh, drbletcher.com uh, on the web. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well, uh, at gbletcher. Uh, my rooms are predominantly at the moment in uh, Moorabbin, uh, so Holmes Glen Hospital, but I also work out of the Epworth Freemasons in East Melbourne. Uh, publicly, I work at two hospitals. I work at uh, both Monash and the Alfred Hospitals. The amount of fertility work that we can really do in those departments at the moment uh, is limited because of uh, certain funding issues, but uh, it's something that they were looking forward to in the next few years of perhaps trying to introduce. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. And do you want to just spell out your website for our listeners? Sure, it's at www.drblecher.com. Wonderful. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Knocked Up. For more information on fertility, please visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au. You also might want to check out past episodes. We've covered men's fertility before in January, February 2019. By subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star review, it really helps others find us. Our mission is to empower women seeking real, honest and accurate fertility advice. We appreciate your help. You can find us on the socials as well at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr. Rayleigh Alou. We'll be back with another episode soon.